In the pre-dawn hours of February 14, 2000, for reasons unknown, a nine-year-old girl named Aisha Degree quietly snuck out of her home as her family slept. She was spotted by motorists just after 4 a.m., carrying a book bag and walking in the rain down a narrow two-lane highway before she vanished into a dark patch of woods. She would never be seen again. Over a year later, a construction worker unearthed her book bag on the same stretch of highway over 20 miles from where she was last seen. And it was obvious that it had been buried intentionally. Could the contents of her book bag hold the clues that could finally solve the mystery of her disappearance? Or is this just another question to add to the list of unanswered questions in her case? This is episode 13 of They Disappeared, The Lost Highway, The Disappearance of Asia Degree. Aisha Degree was born on August 5, 1990 in Shelby, North Carolina. Those who knew her well describe her as a shy and quiet little girl who was content to stay in the company of her family. Her parents, Harold and Aquila, raised both Aisha and her older brother, O'Brien, with a strong focus on family, faith, and education. The family attended church service weekly, and Aisha was also enrolled in regular Bible study and sang in her church choir. Because both Harold and Aquila worked full-time, Aisha and O'Brien were responsible for letting themselves into their home and were expected to have their homework complete by the time their parents returned. By their own account, Harold and Aquila insulated Aisha and O'Brien from negative outside influence. There was no computer in their home, and their exposure to TV was limited. When asked about the TV restriction in the home, Aquila was quoted as saying that every time you turn on the TV, there was some pedophile who had lured somebody's child away. Aisha was in fourth grade at nearby Falston Elementary, and going into the second week of February 2000, the Cleveland County School District closed on Friday, February 11th, which gave faculty and students a three-day weekend. While Harold and Aquila worked, Aisha and O'Brien spent the day at their aunt's house in the same neighborhood. They then went to their youth basketball practices held at their school. On Saturday, February 12th, Aisha's basketball team, on which she was a star point guard, lost its first game of the season after Aisha had fouled out. Her family says she was upset by this and cried with her teammates, but she seemed to have gotten over it by the time she was watching O'Brien's game that was played afterwards. It is not known if losing that game was a contributing factor that led to her leaving. But in less than 36 hours, Aisha would be gone forever. Sunday, February 13th, Aisha and O'Brien attended their regular church service, 
then hung out with relatives afterwards, before they returned home at around 8 p.m. At 9 p.m., a nearby car accident had knocked out the power in their neighborhood. When the power returned at 12.30 a.m., Harold had checked on Asian O'Brien, who shared a room, and both were in bed asleep. He checked on them again before he went to bed at around 2.30 a.m. Sometime after this, O'Brien woke up briefly when he says he heard Asia's bed squeak. He didn't give much thought to this, thinking she was just shifting positions in bed. He then went back to sleep. It is believed it was at that time that Asia had gotten out of bed and took the book bag she had previously packed, left the home, and locked the front door behind her, using her copy of the house key. At 5.45 a.m. that morning, Aquila woke up to get Aisha and O'Brien ready for school. At 6.30, she entered their room and found O'Brien in his bed. But Aisha was not in the room. She searched the house and even checked the inside of their cars but could not find her. She then woke up Harold, who suggested that Aisha may have went to her grandmother's house across the street. After learning Aisha wasn't there either, Aquila called the police. The first police officers arrived at the home at 6.40 a.m., and by 7 a.m., friends, family, and neighbors had already began searching for Asia, but could not find her. Police dogs were brought in for the search effort, but were unable to detect her scent. Without knowing why Asia left or where she was going, it was as though she had walked out of her home and vanished into thin air. After local news stations began airing the story of Aisha's disappearance, two motorists contacted authorities to report seeing her on the morning of February 14th, approximately a mile and a half from her home. One of the motorists who spotted her was a truck driver for the Sundrop Bottling Company named Jeff Roop. Roop told police that he saw her at around 4 a.m., walking south on Highway 18 near the intersection of Highway 180. Out of concern, Roop says he went through the trouble of turning his 10-wheel tractor-trailer around to check on her. But he had lost sight of her, saying she had veered off the highway into some fog in nearby woods. The other motorist, Roy Blanton Sr., was on his truck route with his son when he reported seeing someone he thought might be Asia walking on the side of Highway 18 at 4.30 a.m. Concerned she may get hit by a truck, Blanton actually reported it on his CB radio to alert other truckers to watch out for her. Blanton was a former deputy with the Cleveland County Sheriff's Department and was quoted as saying, I couldn't tell it was a child. I thought maybe it was a domestic violence thing, where the woman left the house and was out walking. Jeff Rue provided authorities with the location he last saw Asia, near a field that was owned by a local businessman named Charles Turner. He recalled she was wearing a dress and white tennis shoes, and her hair was in pigtails. Rupe was also quoted as saying of Asia. She never did look up at me. 
and she looked like she knew where she was going. She was walking at a good pace. As part of their investigation, the FBI asked Roop to take a polygraph test, which he consented to, and passed. As the search for Asia intensified, law enforcement focused their searches on the Turner property, which housed Turner's upholstery business. On the 15th, in an old outbuilding, the Turners reported that they found a yellow hair bow, some candy, a green marker, and a white pencil. They also found a school photo of a young girl that to this day no one has been able to identify. Other than the picture, all of the items found in that shed were identified by Harold and Aquila as belonging to Asia. In total, 9,000 man-hours were invested searching a three-mile radius of where Asia was last seen. And other than the items in that outbuilding, no other traces of her were found. Authorities had come to a frustrating dead end. They would have nothing to go on until a year and a half later, when a construction worker would unearth the most significant lead in this case. On Friday, August 6, 2001, a day after what would have been Aisha's 11th birthday, a construction worker named Terry Fleming was clearing land for a driveway six miles south of Morganton, North Carolina when he unearthed a book bag that had been wrapped inside of trash bags. When he saw Aisha's name and phone number printed on a piece of paper inside of the bag, he contacted police. Using cadaver dogs, authorities conducted an extensive ground search of the area the bag had been found and discovered a pair of men's khaki pants and the skeletal remains of what was later determined to be an animal. The book bag and pants were both sent to the FBI for analysis. And for 17 years, no details were released to the public as to what else was found at the site. Until October of 2018, when the FBI disclosed two of the items found in Asia's book bag. A new Kids on the Block t-shirt, which Asia's family said was not hers. In the book McGilligan's Pool by Dr. Seuss, which had been checked out of the Falston Elementary School Library. But unfortunately, school records did not go back far enough for investigators to identify who had checked the book out. If it was Asia or someone else, remains a mystery. The only other potential lead in Asia's disappearance was a tip released in 2015, which reported that Asia may have gotten into an older model Lincoln Mark IV, or Ford Thunderbird that was dark green in color. But to date, this tip has not led to any new developments in her case. Asia's family has always cooperated with law enforcement, 
and were long ago cleared of any wrongdoing in Asia's disappearance. They continue to keep her story in the media, having appeared multiple times on TV, and even getting Asia's story aired on the Montel Williams show, Oprah, and America's Most Wanted. The day Asia disappeared was not only Valentine's Day, it was also the day of Harold and Aquila's wedding anniversary. Now every year on that day, Harold, Aquila, and O'Brien host a walk which starts at their home and follows the path Asia walked the morning she vanished. It ends at the spot she was last seen, where a billboard was erected that bears Asia's face and asks the public for help in bringing her home. At the Walk for Asia this year, the Degree family spoke to the Gaston Gazette about the billboard that now includes an age progression of what Asia may look like today. O'Brien, who himself is now a father with a ten-year-old daughter, told the Gazette that the past year has been crazy difficult, seeing my daughter grow up with the same mannerisms Asia had. Despite the twenty years that have passed, Aquila praised law enforcement efforts in the search for her daughter and reiterated a message she has said since the day Aisha vanished, saying, quote, I believe my daughter is still alive, and if she ever gets away from whoever took her, all she has to do is come home or go to a police station. Wherever it is, it doesn't matter. We will be there. I spent over a month researching this case. As I worked off of a theory, I spoke with former runaways and childhood victims of molestation and grooming, and it was through their stories that I became convinced that someone close to this family had groomed Asia over an extended period of time and had gained her trust and was able to convince her to sneak out of her home the morning she vanished. Reviewing Aisha's actions on that morning, it appears this was pre-planned. She was prepared to leave and had enough awareness to pre-pack and to lock the door behind her. Then I focused on the timing, in particular the date, Valentine's Day, and her parents' wedding anniversary. If Aisha left purposely on that day because of its significance... I saw two likely scenarios. As one child runaway and molestation victim told me, all little girls are dreamers. And this victim had been groomed intentionally to believe that on Valentine's Day, she would be running away to marry a 30-year-old man. She was 12 at the time. Her groomer had created this romantic idea of a happily ever after. And to her, that was more right than wrong. This could have been a possibility in Aisha's case. But I thought Aisha leaving may have had more to do with her family than her romance. 
and that her groomer used Harold and Aquila's anniversary as a way to get Aisha to sneak out of her house. The scenario I thought of was that Aisha would have been convinced that she wasn't doing anything wrong. But she had to leave in secret, using her parents' anniversary as a way to meet whoever it was near her house, and together they would go get her parents some great anniversary gift. A gift so great that her parents wouldn't care that she had to sneak out to get it for them. In order to groom Aisha to follow through with this, it would have taken time and trust. And someone with knowledge of the family dynamic, routines, rules, anniversaries. Which is why I believe this was someone not only Aisha knew, but the family knew as well. A groomer with insider knowledge could have even used Harold and Aquila's parenting style against them, telling Aisha it wasn't fair her and O'Brien couldn't watch what they wanted to on TV, or that it was unfair not to have a computer. A predator just needs to find a way in, and to keep it quiet. With Aisha being a shy girl, she may have been perfect at keeping all of this a secret. A common theme among the molestation victims I spoke with was that the predator was someone they knew and trusted. In one of the victim's cases that I was told, I'll call the victim Jane. The predator knew Jane's parents and had been in their home and even had dinner with them on occasion. And one day this family friend showed up at Jane's school during recess to see her and give her a gift. He told Jane that if she kept it a secret, he would keep coming back with more gifts for her. And over the course of several months, the family friend had showed up with so many gifts and candy that Jane would actually get sad on the days he didn't come to see her. Then one day, this family friend showed up after school and offered Jane a ride home. On the way home, they stopped at a toy store and he bought Jane an expensive toy. When they got back to their car, she said that this family friend started crying. So she asked him, why are you sad? And he told her he loved her, but he couldn't see her again because her parents were mad at him for being nice to her. He told Jane the only way they could keep seeing each other was to run away together, and Jane agreed to run away with him. This family friend next dropped Jane off at her bus stop so her parents wouldn't know she was with him and hadn't taken the bus home. She was supposed to pack and sneak out later that night and come meet him. A neighbor who saw Jane get dropped off alerted Jane's parents asking them who the man was that dropped her off. When confronted, Jane told them, and they called the police. Jane said other than hugs and kisses on the cheek, this family friend never touched her. But regardless, all of these years later, she's still traumatized at how easily she had been convinced to abandon her family and run away with them, even though she was a happy child and had a good home life. In her case, the groomer had built a bond or connection with her that she didn't want to break. She had also kept it a secret for months. Other victims I listened to described receiving gifts that were symbolic in nature. One was the song the groomer told the victim reminded him of her. It was I'll Never Let You Go by Steelheart. Told her if she ever heard it, she should automatically think of him. It would be like he was with her, talking to her. And for some reason she liked that. She had this secret. A male victim was told by his groomer to read the book a separate piece because the description of the character Phineas was just as he was. This made him curious enough to buy the book and read it. 
and then he became concerned when he read that Phineas dies near the end. Out of all the stories I listened to, these were the ones that resonated the most as it related to Aisha's case and helped develop my theory that grooming was involved in her disappearance. The victim who described a song the groomer used as a connection to her and a way of having the victim think of the groomer when she heard that song when he wasn't around made me think of Aisha and her connection to music, singing in her church choir. And then I thought of the New Kids on the Block t-shirt that was found in her book bag that her family didn't recognize. Was that a gift from a groomer? New Kids on the Block had a large, young female following. But at the time Aisha disappeared, New Kids on the Block had last been active in 1994. Prior to the year 2000, the band had last been in North Carolina in August of 1990, when they performed at the Grove Stadium in Winston-Salem. It was during that leg of the tour, this same type of shirt was sold at their venues, leading to the possibility that Aisha's groomer was a local, possibly a woman, or the parent of a preteen at the time New Kids on the Block was in North Carolina. Unfortunately, no records exist today of who may have bought New Kids on the Block concert tickets 30 years ago in North Carolina, so tracking anyone down using that method is impractical and pretty much impossible. The other clue in Aisha's case I explored was the book McElligot's Pool by Dr. Seuss. The victim's story I listened to of Phineas in a separate piece got me wanting to read McElligot's Pool for any type of subliminal message or significance a groomer could have used on Aisha. Those unfamiliar with the story, it's about a boy named Marco who is fishing in a trash-filled pond when he's laughed at by a farmer who says, Young man, you're sort of a fool. You'll never catch fish in McElligot's Pool. Marco is an optimist who values patience and believes he'll get a reward if he remains patient, while the farmer is a skeptic, telling Marco McElligot's pool is too small and people put trash in it. But Marco believes the pool is larger than it appears, with an underground river that connects it to the sea, and every fish Marco can think of can make it into McElligot's pool. At one point in the story, Marco imagines that the river flows along under a highway where no one can see it. Is it possible that McGelligot's pool was in some way a symbol of the town of Shelby or Aisha's home? A small place that could lead a dreamer to something greater. Maybe there's nothing to it or much more. Anything's possible. We just don't know. Exploring how and where Aisha's book bag was found, I felt was someone's poor attempt at distancing themselves from a crime. Driving 26 miles on the same highway and going through the trouble of putting her bag in trash bags before burying it which actually helped preserve it. I wondered if it had been kept as a trophy at one time, which would become problematic for someone close to the family. Burying it instead of throwing it away or burning it suggests it was being kept purposely. And that person may have planned on returning at some point to retrieve it. A critical piece to this puzzle is why no one has been able to identify the young girl in the photo found on the Turner property. The photo was released to the public at the same time of Aisha's disappearance, but no one has come forward to identify who she was. The photo is of a young African-American girl, possibly Aisha's age. It can be viewed by doing a Google search on this case. This episode was purposely released on August 5th, on what would have been Aisha's 30th birthday. 
Someone out there knows something. And if I'm right, it just might be someone the family knows. And whoever that person is, it's time for you to let Aisha come home. Until you do, I hope you are haunted every day by Aisha Degree, the little girl whose spirit comes alive every February 14th on the Lost Highway.